0: We're going to be uh, looking at uh, Psalm 51, verse 10 on this Communion Sunday. I was uh, intrigued to know that uh, the worship team already had on, on their hearts the idea of a wandering heart from God and how to be spiritually restored because we're going to talk today about spiritual restoration and uh, take an insight from a man who knew what it was like to wander and be restored David was the writer of Psalm 51, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 with a particular focus on verse 10. So let us hear the word of God as penned through the hand of David centuries ago. He wrote in a prayer to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is God's word for our hearts in this day, and may we hear it. Amen. You can be seated. Well, spiritual restoration is, uh, is the theme for today as it relates to communion. I would kind of redescribe it with the phrase, how to return to God and regain your joy. And all of us, experience this need frequently if we're honest with God about our sin. And uh, the Holy Spirit is always after this work of restoration in our hearts because he wants us to experience the joy of our salvation. It's his greatest goal. Now, This message may speak in a variety of ways to a variety of people who hear it. Uh, For some of us, we may be involved in what we know in our inner man or woman, As serious sin today. Yes, as believers. Believers can be trapped in serious sin and it's present tense for you. I'm so glad you're under the hearing of the Word of God today because there's a pathway to move out of that. There's a pathway to be restored from that that we'll find in David's words. But there may be others of us today that hear this and uh, we wouldn't convict ourselves of serious hidden sin today. But we may find out as the word of God comes over our hearts today that we're involved in what I would call unserious sin in the present. And that means we've given ourselves permission to be involved in certain pathways, certain actions in our life where we've widened the circle of what we allow in our world and what we allow in who we are. We're unserious about certain things that God's Holy Spirit is serious about, And if we were in a deeper connection with him and we were letting him speak to us, as we know he's seeking to speak, we would be taking certain things in our lives and saying, you know, I've been unserious about this for years. I thought it was permissible for me. And yet now the Holy Spirit is speaking to me about this dimension of life. And he wants me to realize I've got I'm I'm unserious about certain sin in my life. The Holy Spirit is always pressing us to more holiness, isn't He? And He's always pressing us to more freedom in Jesus. Because believe me, sin, serious or unserious, is a shackle on our soul. So uh, when we take a look at this, the Psalm really reveals something that David discovered in his own life, and that was that he'd allowed certain sin to be unserious in his life, even though it was very deeply uh, offensive to God. And he refused over a period of months to deal with it. So undealt sin is also in the picture here. And undealt with sin creates spiritual distance in our relationship with God. And it creates a sense that we can't come to God fully. We can't open ourselves fully to him. And there's a certain sense in which God, we feel, seems to be hiding his face from us. Alan Redpath was a marvelous uh, pastor and student of the, the deeper spiritual life in the past. He wrote this. It's only deliberate, willful sin that has not been confessed and forgiven that makes us feel that God has forsaken us. For that sin causes him to hide his face from us. Now, In the fullest sense, we're forgiven in Christ completely, past, present, and future. Deep sin, trivial sin, serious sin, unserious sin. It was all taken at the cross. We know that as believers. But there is a sense in which God deals with us over our sin when we don't bring it into the light of our relationship with him and acknowledge it. When we hide it, there's a sense in which he begins to chasten us. And our relationship with him experiences the reality that we've got something we're hiding from God. I think Dr. Redpath was onto to something with that statement. It gives us the sense that, that, that God has forsaken us. There's distance between us. However you want to describe that, I'm sure as a Christian, you've experienced it. I know I have. As I've been involved with unserious sin or maybe deep sin that God had to reveal to me. So there's a spiritual distance that comes, and it needs to be bridged. David's experience was one of the greatest descriptions of serious sin in Scripture, and this psalm was written after he couldn't take the spiritual distance from God any longer. It was months after the sins that he committed, he thought, were swept into into the past He had dealt with them and hidden them from those around him and he thought that he could move on with God but the Lord would not let him go, praise God. And God dealt with his sin, chastened him severely and called him to bring all of this out into the light of his relationship with God. And finally when all that pain was subsided David had to write about restoring his inner walk with God and that's what Psalm 51 is about. It's a very transparent psalm, spiritually. But I've also found in my life, as I've gone back to it many times, it's not only transparent, it's spiritually transferable. I have taken David's struggles, and I use them to find my way back to God when I have walked into sin. So transparent and transferable, and that's why I want to teach from it today. We're going to do three things, as we often do. I want to begin by talking about the struggle of the spiritual life, why we get into uh, sin in the first place, and why we start to create barriers around confessing it. What is it that tempts us into sin? So the struggle of the spiritual life. Second, I want to go into this ver- one one part of the psalm and talk about one essential that you have to have in your heart to come back to Him. And then finally, I want to talk about how communion itself is as a is a God designed pathway to help you restore. Your walk with God. And then we'll go to the Lord's table together. So first of all, let's look at this struggle of the spiritual life. Just a few things under this, and, and uh, just want to briefly talk about them with you. First of all is this, if, if you have a struggle in your spiritual life with sin, and in your relationship with God and dealing with it, that's actually a good sign of spiritual life. You probably are way ahead of me here. But it's only true believers that struggle with secret sin. It's only true believers. It's only true believers that are convicted by the Holy Spirit. It's only true believers that have a new standard in life that they didn't have before they came to Christ. The Scripture is clear. Only true believers struggle with sin. Non-believers live in it without any real tension other than the consequences of it, causing problems in their lives. But the Bible clearly teaches that uh, once you become born again, you develop a new sensitivity to sin that creates the struggle. And of course, the, the, the flip side of that is, if you really have no inner struggle over sin that you've committed or are committing, and yet you claim to have a relationship with Christ, there is a bigger question you need to answer. And that is, if there is no struggle, if there is no conscience striking, if there is no issue in your heart with things that are clearly sin, and you know them in an honest conversation with God, you have to go back to a deeper question. And that is, have you been given a new heart to begin with? We know that the scripture says in Romans 7 that as we battle with sin, we echo the words of Paul that I am doing again that which I do not want to do. So there's a new man within you now, a new, new spirit, a new identity that struggles with sin in a brand new way. That's why Paul told the, I believe it was the Ephesian believers or it could have been the Corinthians, either group had big problems with the moral issues of their past. And he said, don't be surprised that now that you've come to Christ and you've left the darkness and you've come into the light of a new relationship with God and he's given you a new nature and a new heart. Don't be surprised that you don't want to walk headlong into the sins you used to do. And don't be surprised that your non-believing friends are shocked that you don't want to run headlong with them into the same old things, the same old parties, the same old addictions, the same old indulgences, the same old wickedness, the same old sin against other people. In fact, you're going to be criticized by the same people that you used to run with. So the first thing that I recognize about the struggle of the spiritual life is that it's a sign of spiritual life. I don't think that's lost on you. The second thing I'd mention is that when you become a believer you enter into a multi-front war. The spiritual struggle is a multi-front war. Now if you know anything about history, and I'm a history buff, I read military history all the time, and uh, American history. I just finished a, a, a book about the War of 1812 and the battle for New Orleans that I can enthrall you about, but I won't. <laughs> I'm reading D-Day this week, and and then I just finished a, a volume on what it was like to be on a strike team in the jungles of Vietnam last week. So that's, that's my hobby, if you will. And I've learned something about warfare and all of that, and that is that the surest way to lose a war is to open up multiple fronts. A lot of people believe that the war in Europe against the Nazi regime began to be won on June 6, 1944, D-Day. Most of us believe that. That's why it's such a significant moment in our culture. But actually, military historians tell us that Hitler lost the war, he lost the European campaign, and his entire military campaign collapsed on June 22, 1941. Why? Because that was the day Hitler decided to begin something called Operation Barbarossa, in which he took his armies and he split them. He decided not only to finish invading and conquering Western Europe, but he decided also to go ahead and conquer the Soviet Union. And the day he did that, June 22, 1941, military historians agree, was the day he really lost the war. Because when you decide to fight on more than one front, two things happen. You You better double your army, or you now have half the chance to victory. Doesn't that make sense? Hitler refused to see that, and of course we're all here because of it. So when you fight a multi-front war, you better be able to double your army, or if you don't, you have half the chance of victory. Well, in the scripture, the the believer fights a three-front war. You're probably ahead of me on this too, but it bears reminding and that is that we, fra- we face a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Puritan theologians made that phraseology popular, but Jesus identified it, of course, in the Gospels, and he talked about the plight of the believer as we face spiritual conflict. And he said that the spiritual front, uh, spiritual war has three fronts. He identified in Matthew, in one Gospel, you can find all three of these. For example, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22, Jesus talked about the fact In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22, he talked about the fact that the world around the believer, as the believer seeks to live a kingdom life, the world constantly assaults your desires to live and to move forward for God. Verse 22, he's talking about the parable of the soils talking about the great struggle of spiritual life, whether your spiritual life is even authentic. And he said, as, as, as for the seed that was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So the world system is spring loaded to defeat the spiritual life and it leads all of us into compromise. The cares of the world, the trials thereof, or the lures of the world lead us to live in opposition to God's values. If you go further in the Gospel to Matthew 26, you can see some evidence that Christ also talked about. The, the fact that we have, we have a, a dimension, a nature in our, our, ourselves, the Puritans called it the flesh, the Scripture calls it the flesh. Jesus talked in Matthew 26, 41, and he talked... Uh, to his disciples who made these grand promises of being willing to stand against all spiritual opposition and to stand for Jesus no matter what. And Peter declaring that, that he would stand for Christ no matter what. When they finally got to the hour of standing for him, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, and what are they doing in Gethsemane? Sleeping in Gethsemane. And Christ walks forward to them in that hour of spiritual failure, and he reminds them, listen, wake up. Stand against the enemy. Watch and pray, verse 41, Matthew 26. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The dynamic of our own sinful nature draws us away from our greatest commitments. And Jesus identified that. The Puritans said it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, and Jesus identified all three. Matthew also, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13, if you go back to that portion, Jesus very clearly identified. And he said, you need to be praying constantly that you're not going to be led into temptation by the enemy of your souls. Pray about it daily in the prayer that I give you because it's a daily risk. Matthew 6, 13, pray this way and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You're delivered from something that is so powerful that it's wielded by a wicked one who could literally envelop your life with temptation and destroy your life With the sin he's led you into. And so we have a three front war, don't we? Jesus described it. Here's the third thing I understand. If it's a sign of spiritual life, number one, we're targeted by the enemy, number two, in a multi-front war. Our, our sinful nature is one front. The world itself, loaded with sin and opportunity, is a second front. The devil and his supernatural power to in, entrance and entice a believer in deep and uh, unfathomable ways is the third front. I conclude this. You and I are going to be tempted, and we are going to fail. If all of this, as I've said, is true, you and I are going to be tempted, and we're going to fail. We're going to be tested, and we're going to fail. We're going to be drawn by our own flesh into sin, and we're going to fail at times. Sometimes we're even going to fall. I make a distinction there. Failing in the moment, arresting it in the moment, and moving back into fellowship is one thing. A fall is what David experienced, and we're going to study here. A fall is being Uh, taken into sin and entering into a time when you're spiritually captive to it. And it requires battle to get out of it. it. It can be a period in your life. It can be a sector of your life. It can be a dimension of addiction. It can be a region of compromise. It can be a lot of things but it represents not just a momentary failure, but it represents a fall into, into being captured by something in which you've got to battle your way out. You say, well, that would never happen to me as a Christian. You're just not aware of it yet. With experience in the spiritual war and with an enemy that's out to destroy your soul, you will, at some point in your life, maybe more than once, fall into a dimension of sin that's serious, it's serious to God, and you feel entrapped within it, and you need to know how to be spiritually restored. Now, this can happen out of decision or difficulty when I talk about dimensions of falling into episodes of sin with believers when I've dealt with it in my own life it can come out of decision where we are tempted by the devil we're overwhelmed by him as in James 1 we fall into temptation and that takes us into an episode of sin that we've got a battle to get free from or we come into it out of difficulty this goes back to where jesus talked about the cares of life james talks about the great trials of life that are so severe that it might even lead a believer in james chapter one to say god is giving me too much god is tempting me and james says no that may seem like too much god never tempts you into sin he tests you into righteousness But sometimes the trials of life and the difficulties of life cause us to have a mental conversation that says, this is too much for me. I can't obey God under this situation in my life. And you begin to live apart from him because of the difficulty. So sometimes deep sin comes from direct decision. Other times it comes from a rationalization under difficulty. But either way, we can get wrapped up in it. God has compassion on both but we must take action to be restored. And again, it goes back to David's environment. His decision, his sin was a pure decision. But in other times and later sins in his life, he was wrapped in sins that came about through situations of difficulty that pressed him, and he made the wrong move. Either way, it can be destructive. This is about that. This message is about that. The domain of spiritual struggle when you've fallen into a dimension that's serious. Out of decision or difficulty. And the way out, of course, is based on truth. Earlier, when I said it's a three-front war, and you realize, wow, that that triples my vulnerability to spiritual failure. How do I fight a three-front war? Glad you asked. In Ephesians chapter 6. Paul reminds us that all victory is based on living out of the truth of the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the dimension of spiritual war and conflict. And as he describes all of this, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is Ephesians 6.10. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a massive description of one of the greatest fronts of the war, and that's the supernatural satanic side. How do you stand against that? Therefore, take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm there are dimensions that you're going to face in your spiritual future if you're a young christian you may have already faced them if you're a walking experienced christian and especially if you've decided to make a difference for god in the lives of others where you are going to be assaulted by the enemy of your soul, and he is going to set up a day of great temptation for you. They come regularly in the life of the obedient Christian. And those are times when you can almost sense... That the forces of hell are arrayed against you in a special strategy, in a season of great temptation or great sorrow or great difficulty or great mental temptation, and you understand you're in what the Scripture calls an evil day. How do you stand against that? How in the world do you win? You don't win in this world. He says you win by taking on all the armor of God, verse 11, which is, as he defines it later in the text, the word of God, the sword of the spirit. How do you get out? A spiritual failure. How do you avoid getting in in the first place? You live on a truth basis with God. You live on a truth basis with God. That's how you fight it and stay out of it. But if you fall into it, dear brother or sister, the way out is the same you begin to live on a truth basis with god again now all of that in this first point illustrates the context of this moment in psalm 51 because that's what david had to learn how to do again he'd been playing games with god he'd been deceiving himself about god he'd been living with certain parts of his life compartmentalized off into i give myself permission to do this And when it created disaster, the Spirit of God put his finger right upon it through an old prophet named Nathan, and David had a decision to make. Will I respond and come back into truth in this area of my life with God, or will I not? Psalm 51 is his way-back psalm in which he describes making the right decision. So before we get to the second uh, of the uh, the, the, the dimensions of the message, and that is the one essential that you have to have in your heart to come back from great sin. Let me tell you a little bit about the psalm itself. Um, as, as you know, when we've discussed it before, it's a psalm with a story. It may have the greatest story behind it of all the psalms. If you take a look in your Bible, it's one of the few psalms that has what they call a superscript over it that talks about the origin of, the, of why the psalm was written these are not inspired, but they're, they're pretty reliable. And uh, this one says in Psalm, my Bible, it says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So you remember the greatest moral sin in David's life was his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery. But oh, what a story it was. This is a psalm with a story. You know that, that David had risen to the highest level of victory and dominance in his kingdom and at that level, he was in that dangerous zone where everything was going well. He had no battles to fight, to, to fight, pardon me. He let other kings go out and do his fighting. David began to relax in his personal life and his spiritual life, and he became deeply vulnerable. David was walking on the rooftop of one of his houses one day, and he looked down from the rooftop, and he saw on a rooftop below a beautiful woman bathing. And that beauty attracted him He sent and inquired about who she was, and his servant went and asked and found out that this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why is that significant? Uriah the Hittite was one of the greatest warriors that was serving David on a battlefield where David should have been, 50 miles away. He should never have touched a relationship with that woman. The servant tried to warn him off by telling David who she was, David wasn't hearing any of it. His lust and his sense of entitlement had taken him all the way to the other side already. The scripture says he sent for her and he took her and he lay with her. There's a sense that it's possible he may even have forced himself upon her as king, the ultimate expression of power abuse over a woman. Then he returned her to her house and she told him some weeks later, I'm pregnant. David goes into a mode where he wants to deal with his sin and cover it up. He begins to pull all the levers of power that he has as ultimate authority in the kingdom. He tries a scheme to bring Uriah into the mix and try and push this off on him. And finally, he has to set Uriah up on the battlefield so Uriah is killed, so David can quickly marry Bathsheba within the timeline of her pregnancy and hide the event. He does this. But what you hide from people isn't hidden from God. In one of the most understated sentences of the Bible, 2 Samuel 11, which records all this, ends it with these words, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No dimension of our life which we believe is tied up, hidden away, and handled is hidden from him. And so God reveals the sin of David to an old prophet named Nathan. And Nathan strides into the throne room of David one day. And he describes this sin and he says, David, you are the man. You have done this. David is struck with the words of Nathan who says, you've despised the word of the Lord, David. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. But it wasn't the end of the story. Chastisement from the hand of God fell. The life of that little boy was taken after he was born. David is deeply chastised and wounded over the consequences of his sin. Months and months go by, but God's still not done dealing with the inner man. He's chastened the outer man, but he deals with the inner man. And finally, David breaks. And Psalm 51 is a psalm in which he describes his full honesty with God and his return in his intimate walk with God. He sat down and wrote the poem, and 3,000 years later, those that fall in sin come back to it again and again because it talks about what it means to come back to God. It's been a lifeline back to God for generations of us as believers. One commentator I read put it this way, Psalm 51 is a page in the Bible no believer should ever be without. Now we can't study the entire psalm, of course, but now we come at least to just one part of it, which I would call the essential dimension that you've got to have to return to God. After serious sin, after sin that's been hidden, It all seems to revolve around this, an inner honesty about the attitudes that got you into sin to begin with. Now we go to the text that I read to you earlier, Psalm 5110. All the, the whirling truth in this psalm is so deep and so rich, but David begins his way back in verse 10. The first nine verses are David's confessing that he was guilty. The first nine verses are, as Dr. John Piper said about this psalm, verses where David David guilts well. He lets the true guilt of his sin fall upon his soul and he confesses and acknowledges it. Blot out my transgressions, verse 1. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. Verse 3, and my sin is ever before me. So he's letting the full guilt of the Holy Spirit guilt him well and bring him back to the Lord. Now he shifts in verse 10, and he wants to... Get that intimacy back with God. And so he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He starts his way back by acknowledging the first way, the first step he took to go away from God. It's all about the heart. How do you come back to God? David tells us it seems to start with an inner honesty about the attitude that got you into sin to begin with. It's an attitude of the heart. David's heart went astray, and everything else fell apart after that. David's heart with God, what he allowed into his inner life, went astray. David began to make compromises, and that's where the pathway to sin was built, rock by rock by rock. So David goes back to where it all began. And he asks God to restore the heart that he himself, David, ruined and filled with sin. He goes back to where it all began. And it's true that in the domain of the heart, David began well, let his heart be deceived, and now he needs to have his heart restored. It's a story of how sin really works. I'll never forget being in student chapel at Biola University where I went for my grad school, the Talbot Theological Seminary, and we had different pastors from the area speak every Friday in chapel. And uh, Chuck Swindoll used to be a frequent visitor. He was pastor of Large EV Free Church in Fullerton at that time. And he came, and he was always a favorite. I'll never forget, And, and, and it was not unique to him, but just seeing a guy with that much honesty... He talked about spiritual sin and he talked about failure. And uh, among pastors because he was warning us about what could come. And I'll never forget him standing there and saying, "Listen, among spiritual leaders, great sin is seldom a blowout. It's usually the result of a slow leak." I'll never forget him standing there. See him right now. So valued that advice. Because as we look at spiritual failure among leaders, and David was a leader, and we see it today among so many spiritual leaders, it is seldom a moment of of devastating decision to be involved in great sin. It is usually the result of a slow leak, and that's exactly what happened in David's life, and you can trace the trajectory of it. In 1 Samuel chapter 16... In verse 13, we see where David began. He was anointed by Samuel the prophet as the great future king of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. That was the physical act that showed that God had chosen him. But then something spiritual happened behind the scenes, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward that's significant David was a man whom God would later say was chosen because God says I chose David because he was a man after my own heart so we know that in the origin of David's calling in life he began with a heart devoted to God not perfect but in the right uh, pr- perspective And this is one of the reasons that he was set apart to be a spiritual leader for Israel. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him that day. And look at it, it says, from that day forward, David had a special anointing of the Spirit of God, the special presence of the Spirit of God, the special power from the Spirit of God, the special guiding from the Spirit of God, all of it. The whole heart to God, controlled by the Holy Spirit. And yet we know that over the years after that, he began to compromise. And the slow leak began in one of the three areas that God had warned Israel about their kings. Remember, Israel wanted a king for generations to match all the, the nations around them who had human kings. But Israel was a unique nation, only nation created, number one, by God, and the only nation, number two, whom God says, I will be your king. It's the only theocracy in history. That one and only nation. God says you don't need human kings. You just come to the tabernacle. You come to those to my presence and I will lead you and guide you and protect you. And Israel did that for a generation or two and they said, "We just don't want a king God that we can't see. We want a king like a human king like all the nations around us." Partially because they knew they could manipulate that king and he would lead them into what they wanted. God finally relents and he says, I'll give you a king. But in Deuteronomy 17, he says, when you get a human king, you, get, you, you need to be warned about three things. Here are the three things that a human king should be aware that he's going to be tempted by. Number one, in Deut- Deuteronomy 17, he shall not multiply horses to himself. In other words, your human king is going to be tempted by military power. He's going to be tempted by it. He's going to use his authority over you. He's going to use his authority over nations. That's the first temptation of a king. You better pray that this king that you want doesn't have that temptation. Second temptation, next part of the verse, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself gold and silver. What's the temptation of a person with ultimate authority? To to, to gain financial domination and wealth and to take it from the people that he rules. God said if you get a human king... That's his second temptation. And then the third was this. Neither shall he multiply to himself wives that his heart turn not away. He'll use the power of his office to break down all the moral codes that everybody else has to live by, and he will abuse his authority and enter into multiple intimate relationships, and those relationships will turn his heart. And so we see here the three things that God warned people about and he warned them that if you get a human king these are the three things where he may develop a slow leak david's did pretty well he didn't multiply armies to himself beyond what he needed to do god's will and he really wasn't as addicted to silver and gold as many other kings he managed that fairly well his son solomon blew that out later (laughs) but david did fall in the third one Early in his reign, he began to give himself permission to multiply wives. That's where the leak developed. That's why generations later, 20 years after he was anointed king, he could stand on a rooftop and look down on an innocent woman named Bathsheba and say, I'll take that one too. And he had completely compartmentalized that behavior off from God, and he still thought he could live under the blessing of God. So here's how it all began. So when we take a look at the principle here, the principle is that that you fall into spiritual disaster when you give your heart over to things that you believe you deserve. And in David's situation, the slow leak began when he gave himself moral permission. He gave himself moral permission. It's a dimension that every But he has to be aware of it's a dimension of his life that he gave himself over to So in the dynamic of the spiritual life That's something that david decided to give himself permission to do Started with a whole heart began to give himself a compromised heart And that's what led him into sin i'm sure that david was looking back in verse 10 And he was saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And maybe in his mind's eye, the Holy Spirit took him back to the very first compromise he made in that dimension of his life. He had a lot to be restored for. But the beauty of it is the Spirit of God didn't come upon him with further condemnation, didn't come upon him with further chastening. The Spirit of God responded to this prayer and immediately moved so that his heart could be restored. Don't take my severity today, as stating that if you fall into serious sin in your life as a believer, God's not going to bring you out of it. He will. He is anxious to create in you again a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. And the Spirit of God led David to offer that prayer, and God did it. And he wanted a restoration, and he got it. Now, David knew he was in deep need. He used some very deep terms here. He says, create Barah, the Hebrew word, that's a creation that only God can do. It's it's a creation literally out of nothing. It was the same word used to talk about the Spirit of God brooding over the waters and creating the earth in the beginning in Genesis 1-2. David knew he needed his heart to be touched by God. He came willing, and God came working, and God did it and breathed a, a, a new heart into him. He needed that spiritual change. Then he says, oh God, don't just bring me back to the beginning and give me a whole heart for you again, a heart after you again, but renew a right spirit within me. And the word right there is a very interesting word. It meant constant and firm. That's interesting, because I believe David realized that he had started to give himself permission for certain things in his life. He knew there was a slow leak. He didn't think it was a big problem and began to give him certain self certain permission in certain dimensions of his life he compartmentalized that part of his life and in that sense he was not steadfast in his spirit toward god he didn't have a tough constant firm spirit that said god says no to many things and he says no to that too and i'm going to stop giving myself permission to say yes to that in my life I've failed because I've had a list of never-do's but then a list, a secret list in my mind of some could-do's. That's where spiritual failure happens. All of us are tempted to have a list of never-dos. Oh, I'd never do that against the Lord or I'd never do that so people would find out. But then there's some list of could-dos that just seem to be too difficult to overcome and they don't seem to be that significant in my spiritual life anyway. The Spirit of God seems to continue to bless me anyway. I continue to seem to be okay in my life with God and other aspects of my life anyway. So I've got a list of never-dos, but I may have a secret list of could-dos and get away with it. You might have put it in another way. In some things, David decided it was okay to lose his integrity. He needed his integrity to only go so far. And it was an acceptable level of integrity with God. It wasn't seen by others. But with God, he decided to draw a little circle around some things. And David said... I let my heart wander. I let it leak into things that were not after your heart. That heart that I had for you, I let it slip away. And my standard began to slip and soften. And my spirit of wanting to obey you began to be a list of could do's instead of never do's. All that, Lord, has to be restored. All that, oh God, has to be given back. And he comes to his senses, and he asks God to create in him a clean heart and renew a right spirit within him. And God did it, because David was restored. David moved on his spiritual life, and he had a restored walk with God. So I ask you as a believer today, can you make any comparisons in your life? Well, were you given a heart for God once? Were you given a new heart? Oh, yes. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 3, that you were born again. Ephesians tells us that you now have a new man within you, a new dimension to who you are. He's Ezekiel, I believe, believe, the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 36 and, uh, and later talks about the fact that God would give to Israel when they turn to him in the last days and they see the Messiah that they pierced, he says, in that moment, I'm going to create a new heart within you. I'm going to take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He does the same thing for the person that comes to Christ today. Your dark heart of stone as a person without God is turned into a heart of flesh. Your heart that used to be hardened against God like a rock now beats for God. So you were given a new heart. Weren't you? The Spirit of God rushed upon you when you came to Jesus, didn't he? But could you give part of your heart away? Have you? Oh, yes. I have too. In moments of sin or in seasons of sin. Is there a pathway back for you? Oh, yes. First John tells us this, and that's why it was read in our hearing. And with this, we move to the third and final point of my message, the pathway communion offers. David came and confessed his sin to God. God came and restored David from his sin. Do we have that pathway today? Oh, yes, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We know that to be true. The cross covered it all. But you can deceive yourself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's a great debate as to whether that was written to false believers or believers struggling in sin. It's hard to settle that debate in 1 John. But regardless of how you settle it, it does bear a principle. Just as you deceived yourself before you found Christ, you can deceive yourself in your walk with God. Verse 9 is the solution for either truth. If it's for non believers, they needed to come and confess their sins. If it's for believers trapped in sin, this is for you if we confess our sins I know this is true in 1 John 1 9 he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that's in my Bible you know what I believe it's true check this afternoon when you're done here in your Bible is it going to be in your Bible I hope so unless you're reading the reverse standard perversion or something else like that (laughs) it's right there is it true for you? Yes, it is. There's a pathway back for you. Now why do I relate that to communion? Communion? Because communion is an opportunity for that to happen for you. Now don't misunderstand me. We don't teach here that communion is a sacrament through which you get forgiven. No. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that forgiveness is already available to us through what Christ did on the cross. But Jesus did say in Luke 22, verse 19, that when we come in communion, we do it in remembrance of him. Now, why would he say in remembrance of him? Maybe because he knew that we would be bearing Moments of sin or seasons of sin, and when the Spirit of God breaks our heart about it, we need to have a reminder that Jesus took care of it. Communion is a regular celebration of the church because all believers need to be regularly reminded and put in remembrance of the fact that Jesus did pay it all. And if you're being stirred by the Spirit to get serious about a dimension of sin in your life, Communion is an opportunity between you and the Lord to do just that. Now, communion's not magic. You're still going to have a battle ahead of you like David did to get out of your sin and back into integrity. But, oh, it's a great place to respond to God and begin the journey. It's a great place to do that. Remember, I mentioned earlier, I quoted Dr. Redpath, who talked about the fact that that chronic sin is something that will make you feel distanced from God. C.S. Lewis talked about dealing with that through prayer, and he said, Prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of life. Confession and penitence are the threshold back to God, the door back the presence and vision and enjoyment of God are its bread and wine in other words confession and being real with God about it and coming back to that cross work is the beginning of the restoration of the joy of your walk with God perhaps today hopefully not any human word but the spirit of God himself has spoken about a circle you've drawn in your life A circle of can-do's. A circle of secrets. A circle of permission. And today he's saying he wants into the circle. He loves you. He died for it all already. There is no condemnation with God. But he wants into the circle to begin to help you into fuller integrity. Maybe today is a moment where in quietness you'll begin to acknowledge that to Him. And when you come to the table, it'll be a first step on your